it is without further ado that we uh, come to our first speaker, Matthew Selinski, who has only been in Melbourne for a month, uh, arriving from the US. He's a PhD student in the Interdisciplinary Conservation Science Research Group at RMIT, where he's researching human behaviour in social ecological systems. Before being drawn to the dark arts of the social sciences, Matthew worked in applied conservation and ecology projects in the US and West Africa. Matthew. Hello. Uh, thank you for having me here. Appreciate the pleasure of being here in Melbourne. I, that's right, I've only been here for about a month. And, uh, but a lot of exciting stuff has happened in that month. Um, uh, this abrupt weather changes, these weather systems you have is quite unique. And I come from Minnesota where it gets to be negative 30 during the winter and, and 30 during the summer. And also I lived through a leadership spill which was very exciting. Um, I thought, I have to be honest, I thought the first, when I heard about it, I thought of my former president George W. Bush choking on a pretzel and falling and I thought maybe something similar had happened to Tony Abbott, but he just lost his job. So um, anyways, it's been interesting. And uh, I'm going to talk to you, sorry, I'm, I'm a Yank, and I'm going to talk to you about a Yank. And uh, his name is Aldo Leopold. Um, he wrote a book called The Sand County Almanac. Um, it's musings that, philosophical musings of ecology and conservation. And uh, he impacted uh, ecology also um, was the father of the American conservation movement. I received uh, a Sand County Almanac uh, when I was at the age of seven uh, on Christmas, Christmas Eve, exchanging presents with my family. And I got this from my Uncle Ed. Um, at the time, I was, I was very much into nature, I was into fishing, um, but I didn't really think much of the book, and so it sat on my shelf. I was much more interested in the Nintendo Super Mario Brothers 3 game that I received from my other uncle Steve. And, uh, but it sat on my shelf and at about the age of 10, age 11, I picked it up and I opened the forward. And I apologize to those physical scientists because this is gonna get mushy, okay? There are some who can live without wild things and some who cannot. These essays are the delights and dilemmas of one who cannot. Like things in sunsets, sorry, like winds and sunsets, Wild things are taken for granted until progress began to do away with them. Now we face the question whether a still higher standard of living is worth its cost in things natural, wild, and free. For us, the minority, the opportunity to see geese is more important than television, and the chance to find a pasque flower is as right as inalienable as free speech. This was written in the 1940s, and I think a lot of this still holds true today, and I think you'll find that uh, over the course of my talk, a lot of what he's talking about is, is very true today. Some of the same problems that we're wrestling with in ecology and conservation, um, he was wrestling with it during his time, and some of his thoughts are way advanced uh, for his time and age. Aldo Leopold grew up, um, came of age, uh, sorry, he was born in the late 1800s, and uh, came of age during the progressive era in the United States. Teddy Roosevelt was the president, and uh, a lot of social change was going on, a lot of power was, uh, was through regulation, was uh, transferred from, from corporates and business to uh, the government. 
And Teddy Roosevelt had one of his advisors named Gifford Pinchot, who was a forester. And uh, Pinchot was uh, advocating the protection of natural resources um, and uh, setting aside lands, uh, rangelands, and forests for future generations. And he was coming from a very much uh, a very utilitarian uh, uh, viewpoint. He was looking at uh, as as nature as a dominion of of humans, and and that's something that we need to protect, but something that we're going to utilize in the future, utilize now. So it's, that, that's what we can benefit from. And at the same time, there was a man named John Muir, and I'm sure some of them, some of you are familiar with the Scotsman. He was residing in California at the time. Was very instrumental in in protecting uh, Yosemite National Park, which is a lovely park. If, if you know what it is, I'm sure you can identify with that. Um, but he was coming from the, another point, on the, on the other end of the spectrum. Uh, he, was, he was advocating for wilderness protection. He was advocating for uh, protecting nature for the intrinsic value of, of, uh, of nature. So um, this actually argument was carried out in the public discourse, and that's what Aldo Leopold emerged from. Um, it's funny. Just today, I was reading the New York Times, and there was an article uh, dated yesterday talking about this very same argument that these guys were having, is whether we're, um, we're protecting nature for an anthropocentric um, uh, purpose, or are we protecting it for the intrinsic value? And it's, it's, it was described in this article as the, the battle for the soul of conservation. So um, still those things hold true today. He went off and went to Yale School, the Yale School of Forestry, uh, although, uh, sorry, uh, Gifford Pinchot had found, founded this at Yale, uh, this, the first uh, school of forestry in the U.S., and although Leopold emerged out with a, a very utilitarian uh, viewpoint or, or scope, of, of nature and of, of the forests. And so he went off and worked for the US, Fishery, um, US Forest Service in Arizona and uh, New Mexico, uh, where it was quite common to go out and hunt predators. I think you have something similar, uh, had something similar happen in your past, um, where you wanted to eradicate predators from the landscape because they were affecting the sheep populations, or sorry, the, uh, the, the, the ranchers, and also game populations. And so he was um, going out shooting bears, mountain lions, and wolves. And I'm going to read you a passage from Thinking Alike in Mountains, one of his more uh, well-known essays um, carried uh, within the San County Almanac. And he and his hunting party come across a, a pack of wolves. In those days, we had never heard of passing up a chance to kill a wolf. In a second, we were pumping lead into the pack, but with more excitement than accuracy. How to aim a, a steep downhill shot is always confusing. When our rifles were empty, the old wolf was down, and a pup was dragging a leg into impassable slide rocks. We reached the old wolf in time to watch a fierce green fire dying in her eyes. I realized then and have known ever since there was something new to me in those eyes, something known only to her and to the mountain. I was young then and full of trigger itch. I thought that because fewer wolves meant more deer, that no wolves would mean hunter's paradise. But after seeing the green fire die, I sensed that the, neither the wolf nor the mountain agreed with such a view. And here you see, um, and he's writing this many years later, but at this point there's a, there's a, there's a shift in his views. There's, 
There's an understanding in terms of, uh, of ecology that the, and, and ecosystems that the predator plays a very important relationship in, in, that, in that holistic view of things and, and in terms of controlling uh, prey relationships, sorry, uh, prey populations. Um, it was a very um, uh, pivotal point in his, in his, um, in his history. So um, after he was out in the Southwest, he went to work at University of Wisconsin, became a professor there of a field he founded called wildlife ecology and wildlife management. At the same time, he went out and uh, decided he was going to put some of his knowledge and research to practice. Um, he went out and bought what you guys would call a, 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 bush, a, a bush block uh, and set about restoring a bush block or a farmland that had been uh, degraded a great deal uh, during the, the Great Depression, uh, the Dust Bowl years, which the U.S. experienced an incredible um, was the, the most devastating drought we've had up until maybe the California drought this year. Um, a lot of the farmland was wasted away because of poor stewardship practices, and I think something similar has happened here in the past in Australia. A lot of that prairie, uh, the grasslands of, of the Midwest were, were swept away, and I think it was as similar to some of the Melbourne grasslands that you guys have around here, um, have been eaten up by agricultural land um, and development. But at the time, he goes about restoring this land. He plants tens of thousands of trees, allow those prairie grasses to come back, stabilizes that soil, and it starts affecting his holistic thinking about the landscape. And uh, he starts coming up, uh, uh, trying to come up with philosophical musings of, of, of basically how man, uh, how humans relate to land and develops ideas around the land ethic. Um, he talks about the ecological conscience and how, how we as humans depend on the ecological processes of the land, of, of forests, of, of streams, of, of all these landscapes that we're, we're part of, uh, just as much as the other living things do. And I tell you, at, in the 1940s, this is incredibly advanced. Um, nobody was thinking like this, or very few people were thinking like this, and very few people were, were able to... Uh, to uh, influence ecology and conservation the way he was able to. So I'm going to read just an, uh, an essay from a land ethic really quickly, because I know my time is running short. All right. The land ethic simply enlarges the boundaries of the community to include soil, water, plants, animals, or collectively the land. A land ethic changes the role of homo, homo, homo sapiens, excuse me, from conqueror of the land community to plain member and citizen of it. It implies respect for his fellow members and also respect for the community as such. And there he develops his, from, from this, he develops his most, his famous essay called The Land Ethic. He um, faults economics for not being able to actually quantify or, or not being able to recognize the intrinsic value that, that nature holds, and also not recognizing the ecological processes that we depend on. He calls for a new relationship for land stewards, for anyone to not only be a part of, um, uh, excuse me, not only to, to through regulation, protect uh, private lands and through uh, 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 governments purchasing land to protect protected areas, he talks about us to be very much an integral part of that, that landscape and develop this land ethic. Um, 
I think, and I'll stop there. I just want to say that um, it was it was an incredible moment in in uh, so in 1949, I should say, this was published, and it was about a year after his death. Uh, he died fighting a bush bushfire uh, on, on his neighbor's land. And it influenced the American conservation movement. It set the stage for the environmental movement in the 1960s, along with Rachel Carson's work, uh, Silent Spring. And he helped, um, he helped set the foundations for uh, ecological economics, uh, the field which, which would become a discipline many decades later. And he also influenced ecology a great deal. Plus, he, he helped you know, launch a, a thousand careers in conservation, and I'm one of those. Um, I tell you, reading about his restoration of his work, I went about um, as a as a 14 year old deciding to plant some prairie plants and doing some cute little gardens with woodland wildflowers. Um, but that led to an eventual career in restoration, ecological restoration, and um, and then eventually trying to understand how humans interact in social ecological systems. And my PhD is very much part of. Uh, um, it's interesting, actually. Today, um, one of my uh, uh, associate supervisors and I, we went to this, um, went to a lecture about interdisciplinary. And uh, to be honest, the lecture was kind of a joke. And, but this is something that he was arguing, you know, several, you know, uh, almost, you know, I guess 90 years ago. And uh, I just want to read you something that exemplifies his thought at the time when we're trying to solve these wicked complex problems in, co in a complex system like a social ecological system. One of the anomalies of modern ecology is that it is the creation of two groups, each of which seems barely aware of the existence of the other. The one studies the human community as if it were a separate entity and calls its findings sociology, economics, and history. This, the other studies the plant and animal community and comfor comfortably relegates the hodgepodge of politics to the liberal arts. The inevitable fusion of two lines of thought will perhaps constitute the outstanding advance of the present century. Thank you for having me here, and uh, it's been a pleasure. Enjoy your night.